Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. As you can imagine, I get asked a lot about how the Japanese startup ecosystem is different from others. And I love that question. The problem is that people usually aren't really happy with my answers. It seems that everyone wants to hear stories about anime or strange gadgets or cool trends in gaming. And yeah, there's plenty of that in Japan too. But the things that are really unique and interesting, like evocative machines and the integrator model, and the role enterprise has to play in supporting startups, those things. Take a lot of time to explain to anyone who doesn't already understand Japan, at least a little bit. But they're important. And today, we sit down with Ken Fujiwara of Hackerus, and we're going to look at how Hackerus is using the integrator model to jointly develop AI products with large enterprises. Ken also explains how he had to pivot Hackerus away from his original vision. And how we might be able to pivot back to it in the future. We talk about the challenges of pivoting and staying true to your mission. Cover a few very good reasons why people don't trust AI, and we talk about one CEO who has made it his mission to destroy a startup ecosystem. Oh, and near the end of the show. We have a really interesting discussion about the startup ecosystem in Kyoto. There really are some amazing things going on in Kansai, but you know, Ken tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Ken Fujiwara of Hackerus, and thanks for sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me. Hackerus is a collection of AI platforms that that's targeted both at medical and industrial use, but 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 you can probably explain this a lot better than I can. So, what exactly does Hackerus do? Sure. So Hackerus is basically AI startups, and we provide um, um, AI based applications for um, medicals um, such as AI enabled diagnostic solutions. And for manufacturing industry, we provide、um, visual inspection services. And one of the core differences of our company is that we don't use a mainstream、uh, AI technology called deep learning. We use something else. I, I've noticed that. So you've talked a lot about your ability to, to create AI models based on very small data sets. How, how does that work? I mean. What exactly you do? Are you guys doing? If you don't mind me asking, what the secret sauce is? Sure. Yeah, I don't mind talking about secret sauces. <laughs> so,、um, in machine learning in general,、uh, basic assumption is that you need a lot of data,、uh, what we call training data. And these days,、um, people、uh, they use technology called deep learning. How deep learning works is that basically you feed it tons of data. And it can abstract the futures from the data set, and it can create the model. Our technology called the sports modeling is quite different. So it can do the same thing, but it's from small data set. 
it's been around in academia around like year 2000. And we are the one person you know, who incorporated that technology and commercialize it. So that's, that's our core strengths. Okay. I can see how being able to operate on smaller data sets really opens up a lot of, of broader commercial possibilities because, you know, a lot of people just don't have that much data. So tell me about your customers. It seems like you're, you're dealing with quite a few different applications. Uh, we focus on uh, two industries, medical and manufacturing. And most of the time, as you say, uh, they don't have access to big amount of data. For applications like you know autonomous driving, you can get basically infinite amount of data because you let the car drive in the city. However, for applications like you know um, AI, you know based diagnosis for rare disease, basically you don't have a lot of data for certain disease. Uh, they're only like you know hundred plus unique data. That's it. That's that's all we're talking about. So our customers are pharmaceutical company who wants to make AI-based dynamic solution using this small data set. For manufacturing industry, most manufacturing company, uh, they do have a lot of data for non-defect product. However, when it comes down to defect data, they don't have access to a lot of um, data. So one out of 10,000 production unit, there's only one defect. So again, you know, if you want to do defect detection, you need a lot of uh, uh, defect data or non-okay images. So Hackerus is not creating a specific product. It, it's mainly consulting and helping your clients use this sparse modeling to solve their problems. At the moment, yes. So our majority revenue is based on what we call contract work or consulting work. So we come in and we uh, listen to particular problem that the customer has, and we provide tailor-made solution to that customer. We've been doing um, more than a hundred uh, projects. So we are trying to productize our knowledge and package them as sort of a license so that we can sell it to another customer. Okay. I think it's interesting looking at that hackerus over the last six years. And actually, I want to talk about some of your really interesting pivots you've done. But, but before that, I want to talk a little bit about you. Oh. You, you founded Hackerus more than six years ago now, in, in 2014. But before that, you've been involved with, with quite a few startups before, haven't you? Yeah. Actually, Hackerus is my fourth startup. That's why I look so old right now. <laughs> so yeah, so before this, I had launched three tech startups. This is not the first time uh, doing startup thing in my life. This is your fourth real startup, but you've also had a lot of other projects you've worked on that never quite got traction, right? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, our, my win ratio is like, you know, almost like 10%. So only one win out of like, you know, 10 failures. That's my success ratio. <laughs> no, but I, I no, I see. I don't think people really appreciate that. So I, I, I've started four companies as well. Yeah. But the thing is, I've also had probably twelve other projects that never quite got to financing and full time employees. And, and I, don't, I don't know. I think like people overlook the importance of of having those. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a known saying that, you know, failure is a good teacher to the success without failure. <laughs> you don't get success. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the only way you learn. Yeah, of course. 
So what, what led you to start founding companies? Because before you were at, at Sony and apparently thriving as a productive member of society. So yeah. why leave to start a startup? Uh, to be honest, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur in my life. I was a computer geek when I was like teenager. Um, but luckily, my father was a computer engineer as well. And basically, I was trained by him. So, you know, by the time I became 18 years old, I was pretty good at, you know, writing code or, you know, uh, programming. So I decided not to join Japanese university. Uh, instead, I went to United States and I stayed in the U.S. from 1995 until 1999. That was dot-com bubble. And everyone's talking about, you know, starting their own company, like next Google or next Yahoo or next... What city were you in? Well, in Los Angeles. You understand the, um, the crazy atmosphere back then. And none of my classmates were actually trying to get a job at a big corporate. I was on the exception. I was so like, you know, felt shame because I was the only person getting a nice job at a big corporate like Sony. And I was considered as a complete failure from their perspective. I mean, but after you got into Sony, Sony's a great company to work for. What what made you was was it just sort of missing that that college atmosphere and made you decide now nah, I want to go back and and start a company after all? Yeah, so I knew that I was going to launch my own startup in twenties, but uh, I had no idea how to run a company, just like everyone else. So I joined Big Corporate uh, with the only purpose to learn how to run a company. So, yeah, so I stayed there for three years just to understand how big company is operated. And then went out on your own. Yeah, exactly. Your first couple of startups were, were B2B software. They, they didn't have anything to do with, with AI. So what, what drew you to AI? You know, let me say AI in like early 2000 wasn't usable. Before deep learning, there was two prior uh, waves, but they didn't work successfully. So deep learning is successful application of AI into the industry. It's interesting you say that because, I mean, you were kind of hinting at this before, but there, there's very little in AI that's genuinely new in terms of the the algorithms and the research, right? It's It's mostly just the available computing power and the sudden access we have to vast amounts of training data. Yes. So it's a combination of um, IoT or sensors you know, that can collect that huge amount of data. And as you say, access to uh, huge computing power like AWS or auto cloud computing and also enhancement of uh, individual GPU. Combination of these elements uh, made you know, third wave possible. Okay. Hey, hey, listen, getting back to Hackerus, you originally started the, the company with the idea of it was an IoT project, right? A smart scale for like more healthy living. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, life is a series of pivots. So, you know, you, you never know which direction you're going. But uh, we haven't changed anything, basically, because company's mission is to extend human life beyond like 100 years old. So we tried a different attempt to achieve that mission. And our first attempt is um, making our own IoT hardware, uh, like kitchen scale. So by making that um, IoT hardware, we can collect the unique data set of how people are eating. But, uh, you know, hardware is always hard. That's why, that's why it's called hardware. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Doing hardware is hard. Uh, we soon learned that um, uh, we need a lot of money to do uh, mass production. 
and we changed our direction. Uh, back then, we had a companion smartphone application that can work with uh, the IoT gadget. So we decided to only keep that uh, smartphone application and also the AI uh, running behind that application. That, so that was the first pivot we went through. Well, actually, I, I want to dig into this a bit because pivoting is is hard in Japan. It, it's something very few founders are are able to pull off. Certainly compared to to the U.S. And I'm I'm curious, how did you know when it was time? How did it How did it go? So the moment I noticed that uh, we had to change our direction is, you know, when we did a first crowdfunding campaign using Makuake from CyberAgent, and we didn't get attraction at all. At the time, there are a lot of similar IoT gadgets from, you know, competitors, and they weren't successful, neither. So that was like sort of like, aha, like moment. And we understand that uh, we had to change our direction. Did you get any resistance from the from the staff? Were there people who still like believed in the original direction and wanted to keep going that way? Yeah, of course. So there was huge rejections um, and resistance from the <laughs> existing employee, as you could imagine. So basically, I had let go all these people. Uh, basically, it was just me and a um, couple of uh, co-founders left at that moment. Uh, so we had to basically let go all the hardware rated engineers because they had um, they have nothing to do at the moment. I, I love that your mission is still helping everyone live to 120 years old. Yeah, that's our ultimate goal. Yes. So speaking of pivots, like from your blog, this is something you obviously really care deeply about. You you spend a lot of time researching it and, and thinking about it. But these days, pivoting wise, you're doing a lot more on the industrial and the consulting side. Yeah. So what's kind of the ratio between like the medical tech versus the, the industrial and training and consulting? I would say it's 50-50. Of course, our main mission is, as you say, to extend the human life expectancy beyond 120 years old. So our focus is always on a little bit on the medical side, but uh, doing just medical uh, services or product is also difficult because you have to basically deal with regulatories. Uh, you have to talk to authorities. You need the permission to sell any kind of product and a service in that market. So this is the reason why we are also spending rest of the 50% of our entire uh, resources for other industries like manufacturing. We also focus on the long-term goal, which is medical, and also short-term goal, which is non-medical. Yeah, I mean, life sciences are still really hard for startups in Japan, both on the business and the funding side. Yeah, it is true. You've been at this for the last six years. Have have you seen much of a shift in the way that the investors are thinking about life sciences between 2014 and 2020? Yeah, I'm seeing an interesting shift in the uh, ecosystem right now. I mean, before people who are making investing, investment in biotech or life science startups are like VCs who really understand that field. I mean, people with domain ex- expertise per se. But these days, the VCs are coming from other industries like IT or just pure tech industry, even uh, social media. The VCs from these industries are make the ones making investment in life science tech startups. Really? Yeah. So um, it doesn't mean that they fully understand the uh, <laughs> domain, 
just you know, look at ourselves. I mean, we are not exactly biotech or life science startup. We are basically coming from IT or tech or uh, computer science field, but we are tackling the medical field. But life sciences VCs, man, it, it, it's a special breed because it's all this really expensive upfront cost and you don't know if it's going to work for seven, eight years. It, it's hard to find life science investors. I mean, they're, they're a unique group of people even in the US. Yes, very true. Yeah. So uh, people with different background is coming to the ecosystem. That's that's one effect, one change I'm seeing right now. The other effect or change I'm seeing right now is pharmaceutical companies are more open these days. They are, they are running uh, open innovation program, uh, accelerator program within their organization. Actually, you know, this is how we connect ourselves with pharmaceutical company inside and outside Japan. So basically many big pharma are running their own open innovation program and they're quite active these days. And of course they also make an investment. Okay. Well, actually let's talk about those engagements. So I think there's one startup model in Japan, what I call the integrator model. So, I mean, in the U.S., most startups are very product-focused. They have a definable, defensible, single product or service they offer. And many Japanese startups do, too, of course. But there's also a lot of startups who, are like, like Hackerus, are not selling a particular product. They're selling uh, knowledge and expertise and consulting, integration services, so I, I'm curious, what do these engagements look like? Are they strictly fees for services? Is it co-development of products? Do you get royalties? How, how are these engagements structured? So it really depends on which customer from what industry. For pharmaceutical companies, we tend to do co-development. So we make the AI and we license it. So they are the one who will commercialize or even sell the solution to hospitals and doctors. For manufacturing industries, we have our package software for visual inspection and we customize it to uh, meet the customer needs. So it really depends on what customer uh, you're talking about. But most of the time, we have to do some kind of um, uh, customization or consulting. That, that integrator model is, is really totally valid in Japan. But for, for hackers, what's, what's the future here? Where, where are you in 10 years? Um, are you a bigger, more successful integrator? Are you someone who's launched your own product? Will you, will you get back to your, your core mission of, of helping people live to 120? I mean, your heart really seems to be in that domain. We actually never wanted to be considered as AI startup, and I <laughs> had no intent to become an AI startup from day one. I mean, we are, you know, obviously. Uh, but as we say, our commission is to extend human life expectancy. So right now, we're using AI as just one of the tools that we can use to make that mission possible. But in the future, we might be using other tools uh, to achieve that goal. For instance, we might be producing our own food, maybe or we might be producing our own drugs based on AI technology. We might be try to produce yet another IoT gadget or sensor. So we are focusing on AI because that's our driving force at, at the moment. But in the 10 years, we might be using other tools to achieve the company mission. 
What is the path from here to there? Is is that something you have mapped out or are you taking kind of an opportunistic approach of waiting for the right opportunity to present itself and you can kind of move a little bit in that direction over time? So this is the reason why we have an internal R&D department uh, for focusing on these long-term goals or the topics that has that had nothing to do with the existing uh, business model. So it's always a combination of uh, like going after short-term goal and also going after long-term goal. The running company is always a mixture of both. Like, you know, you want some people focusing on making revenue today. And also you need some completely other uh, type of people focusing on making money for the future, like in like 10 years. Okay. Oh, I, I also wanted to ask you about um, explainable AI. You've mentioned the fact that Hackerverse products result in explainable AI is really important. Why is that important? Of course, it is important. I can give you uh, one example. Let's say you're sick and uh, you went to um, hospital and you met a doctor and he said, hey, um, I think I need to open up your stomach because uh, deep learning says so. Don't ask me why. That's the current status of current technology. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I'm uh, making an extreme example here, but that's the problem that the deep learning has today. I actually, I don't think that's an extreme example at all. I agree with you. I've had discussions about explainable AI when where people have said, no, no, it lets you tune it better. It lets you. But I, I think what you've hit is really it. It's we humans, even if the black box is better, yeah. we're just not set up to accept the fact that, I don't know, this, this computer says to do it, so I'm going to do it. Or no one wants to tell their boss, well, the computer told me to do it. They want to say, well, here's why. Yeah. Everyone wants to know why part, you know, and the same story goes for non-medical fields. Let's say you are head of manufacturing a factory and something just went wrong because of the AI and you have no clue what drove that problem. And you cannot report anything to your boss or the management because AI is completely black box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the problems on our side, we are human side rather than the machine in your opinion, are there technical advantages to it as well? Or is it simply explainable AI is easier for us humans to accept? And so that's, and the humans are the customers. So that's what you're going with. I mean, human by nature, you know, we want answers, like, and also the reasoning behind it. So, I mean, life is all about, you know, finding answers is the reason. I mean, people want to understand why we exist. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, life is all about, you know, finding the uh, questions and answers and reasoning behind it. Is it the case that explainable AI is better suited to some problems and non-explainable to others? Or will they solve similar problems in different ways? These two types of AI applications are trying to solve different types of problems. For instance, for autonomous driving, you, you don't need a um, reasoning behind the AI decision. You just need uh, accuracy, right? But uh, as I say, for medical applications, you always need some sort of a reasoning or explainabilities about why AI comes up with that decision. That makes sense. Let's talk a bit about Kyoto, because I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what's going on in Kyoto right now. And you guys are based in Kyoto. And it's actually Kyoto today reminds me a lot of like Fukuoka five or six years ago, you know, when the, when the community was still like just coming together and there's this great energy and ideas and it was really exciting. Yeah. So what's happening in Kyoto? How, how is the community coming together there? Kyoto 
has been known as a startup city for like at least like 50 years. There is Nintendo, Coursera, Omrom, I mean, you name it. There are a lot of、uh, successful companies born out of Kyoto, and they all used to be a startup from day one, of course. However, at the same time, I often say we don't need any ecosystem. I mean, Kyoto doesn't need that kind of ecosystem like Fukuoka or Kobe or Tokyo, where try, people are trying to help you know, entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur to launch their startup. I even met a couple of CEOs running the big corporate here in Kyoto who explicitly said that I'm here to destroy the startup ecosystem here in Kyoto. What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, let me explain why these people are <laughs> having that kind of thought. So, yeah, of course, when you build a strong ecosystem, you get a lot of startup. And at the same time, you get、um, just okay people. You don't get a lot of crazy people. I mean, you get ordinary people, you know, full launch, just okay startup.、Uh, Kyoto mindset is quite different. So, all these people, The CEOs of an、uh, existing company,、uh, even the people from the government and cities, they're trying to let you know, okay people go out of business and only keep the extraordinary people. Yeah, startup ecosystem means something a little different today than it, it used to. So, so, what I think is like the most important part of the ecosystem, or like the definition of an ecosystem. It's, it's not the mentors or the government employees or the big companies. It's, it's the startup founders themselves, like interacting with each other and supporting each other and,、yeah. and buying services and products from each other. To me, that's always seemed the key. Yeah, very true. Yeah. So let me rephrase just what I said. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You have to basically identify the mentors or people you want to talk to by yourself. I've been doing、um, my prior startup. In, in Tokyo. So I understand there's a strong ecosystem in Tokyo and how Tokyo you know, runs their own community. So there are a couple of like, you know, groups and community out there where you can just go there and hang out with mentors and other entrepreneurs. I, I, I know that. But here in Kyoto, there's none. Basically, you, you are the one you know, who has to find it out by yourself. Okay, well then, well, then why did you move back to Kyoto? Because, I mean, you started your. your, your... Sony job was in Tokyo and your first startup was in Tokyo. So, why not stay in Tokyo? It's a lot easier to raise money, more founders around you. Why, why did you come back to Kyoto? Yeah. So, first of all, I got too old. So, <laughs> <laughs> Tokyo was just too busy for me. One of the reasons why I left Tokyo. But、um, uh, honestly speaking, I, I wasn't focusing on Fundamental problems when I was doing startup in, in Tokyo. I was basically chasing the trends. That's all I was doing at the time. I wasn't you know, focusing on the core mission、uh, or even you know, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So that's the reason why I left Tokyo. And another reason is that you know, Kyoto is sort of my semi hometown because I was born in a prefecture called Shiga that is located right next to Kyoto. So Going back to Kyoto is almost like going back to my hometown. Yeah, very hands on, heads down. You know, that's the kind of stuff I wanted to do. And, and you know, when you, when you say that, so when everyone talks about startup ecosystems, they always talk about like the universities and the big companies and, and the mentor support. And that, that's all really important. But I think you hit on something that I think is so much more important than all of that. 
and and that's like people from Kyoto want to live in Kyoto. Like when when their startup gets big, they'll open a sales office in Tokyo, but they want to stay in Kyoto. And like Fukuoka is kind of the same way, but most cities, like when the startup starts to get big, they'll move the whole company to Tokyo. So I think there has to be this kind of I don't know, like hometown pride or something to to have a really good ecosystem. Yeah, well, you can call it a pride, but uh, I'm not looking at it that way. Yeah, pride probably not the right word, but you know. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, but it's all about you know, keeping distance from the mainstream. So let's say if I were to launch the same startup in Tokyo, hundred percent for sure, I was using deep learning because that's the mainstream. That's the topic everyone's talking about. However, because I'm based in Kyoto, which is kind of far away from Tokyo, I had to be different. So that's one of the reasons why I'm not following mainstream technology like deep learning. So that kind of you know mindset or keeping some sort of distance、uh, from the mainstream is what you know keeping people in here. This is the reason why in that you find so many Kyoto companies so unique. Yeah, I, I think you do have to get some distance from. Financial and political power to to really do anything innovative. Yeah, nowadays you have access to whatever information you want to know using the internet, right? So I never thought that、uh, being in Kyoto has some kind of disadvantage in terms of、uh, fundraising or hiring people, even、uh, in access to the information. It's 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 more of a like choice. But but you also are one of the co-founders of、um, Makers Bootcamp in Kyoto, right? Yeah. So that that's an ongoing startup community out there. Yeah. So that contradicts with just you know what I said. So for it, so yes, the answer is yes. I was trying to launch the ecosystem. So this is how you know Hackers was started as IoT company because Makers Bootcamp and Hackers was almost like you know the two sides of the coins. You know. Now the company changed the name as、uh, Monozuku Ventures, but、uh, yeah, I'm still one of the co-founder of that company as well. No, I, I think they're doing great things, and I think like there's so much interesting stuff going on in IoT in Japan. A lot of it is I have no idea if it's ever going to be commercially viable, but it's just so much interesting and creative ideas are going on right now. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's partly because, first of all, Japan is still known as、uh, one of the best manufacturers in terms of brand and and production quality. These days, we're seeing a lot of、um, IoT or hardware startup founded by people who used to work at、uh, big corporate like Sony, Panasonic,、uh, Honda, Toyota. I mean, we didn't see these kind of people jumping in, into startup world before, but now we do. So that's part of the reason why we're、uh, seeing a lot of interesting. IoT and hardware startup coming from Japan these days. Yeah, I, I think so too, and I think that especially with hardware, it's it's great if you've got a team of, you know, two twenty-something college grads with some great clever ideas, want to make some hardware great. But if you've got a team, and you see a lot of these now, which like two clever twenty-something college grads and one guy in his fifties who. Has been doing production and supply chain for the last thirty years. That's a powerful combination. I think you've you've got to have that expertise to do hardware. Yeah, right. I agree. Yeah, making hardware itself is hard enough, but、uh, making a service on top of this is even harder. 
So these days, hardware alone cannot make any kind of business. People are expecting to receive some kind of service using the、uh, hardware. So I still say that、um, Japanese IoT and hardware stuff needs to improve the service development part, or even、uh, provide experience, you know, good experience using their own hardware. So that's the part that we are still missing today. Well, listen, Ken. Before I let you go, I want to ask you my magic wand question. If I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all—the education system, the way people think about risk, the way people look at startups—anything at all to make things better for startups and innovation in Japan. What would you change? I would say、um, I want to make a change in the education system.、Uh, to be more precise, I want to force all the college student to spend four years outside Japan. You can go to any Japanese university, but you are not allowed to stay in Japan. Four years. Four years. Entire college days, you have to be outside Japan. Why? What would that? What would that do? What What good things would happen because of that? That's mindset is coming from my personal experience that I studied in the United States for five years. So that's how I learned how to speak English. That's how I, you know,、uh, met crazy people from startup world, and also that's how I met、um, all these, you know, interesting people. Not just from United States, but but from all over the world. So spending some good amount of time outside Japan. Gives you so much different ways to look at the things in Japan. I mean, you are from United States, so you you know what I'm talking about. So I really want to change that system and force all the students to spend, let's say, at least like two years. Let's say two years, not just four years.、Uh, two years outside Japan, so they have to speak、uh, languages other than Japanese. Yeah, I, I guess I mean it forces you to learn new ways of thinking and new ways of approaching problems. Yeah, but I, I got to say, even before COVID hit, the trend in Japan was kind of going in the other direction, where we're having fewer Japanese study abroad. Yeah, I agree. I think you know we are the、uh, the peak of、uh, exchange student from you know, Japan. And since like year two thousand, there are less and less students studying、uh, in the United States or abroad in in general. I, I don't know what what's making you know people staying you know inside Japan, but、uh, yeah, the people studying abroad are decreasing. But but at the same time, the number of foreign students studying in Japan is is really going up. Yeah. Is that something you think we're going to see、uh, reverse itself? Do you think there's going to be more of an an interest? Yeah, that has to do with our own economy, I guess. Japan is still sustainable by itself, meaning that we can just launch product and services for Japanese people, and you can still do good business just within Japan. Let's say you know if you are in Israel, there's no domestic market. You're forced to do business outside Israel, so that forces、uh, people to study abroad. And do business outside Israel, even interact with people outside Israel. So, yeah, I think so. I think like Japan's big market, both for startups and society as a whole, it's both、uh, it's like a blessing and a curse at the same time. It is this wonderful test market where you can develop expertise and and refine products before going over, overseas. That say founders in 
in Israel or Singapore don't have that option. I agree. But it does give you the option of being kind of lazy and saying, no, nah, no, nah, this is enough. Why? We'll worry about the overseas markets later. And Japanese investors often don't like startups going overseas because it's risky and takes a lot of capital. Yeah, I agree. So I hope that situation will change in the future. But uh, our company is also focusing on international market, uh, as you know, and uh, one third of all the employees are non-Japanese. So uh, English is default language within our company. Uh, we do startup meeting every day, every morning in English only. So we are willing to go outside Japan basically from day one. And we want to be showcase company that can change our perspective to Japanese market. Well, I have noticed that even if the number of students studying abroad is going down, the number of startup founders who are doing international expansion is certainly going up. Yeah. So that's a good sign. Yeah, that's a good sign. Yeah. But I know that uh, all of these companies are also struggling, you know, to expand the market outside of Japan, especially North America. Um, oh, well, the U.S. is the hardest, man. It, it, it's so competitive and it requires so much capital to, to make headway there. But in the end, that's the market you've got to play in to, to really win at the game, right? Yeah, yeah, right. We are also definitely looking at North American market, but not necessarily United States. This third wave of AI is basically coming from Canada, not uh, from the United States. So we are looking at the uh, Canadian market force to enter North American market. Excellent. Well, listen, Ken, I want to thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having me. And we're back. Ken's comment that he never really wanted to start an AI startup is is interesting. And, and it's actually something founders of AI startups say in private a lot more than you might think. And when they say that, they usually mean it in one of two ways. Sometimes they're reacting to trends and buzzwords. They, they've adopted AI to attract investor or customer interest or to differentiate themselves from current solutions. And sometimes... And, and this seems to be the case with Ken and Hackerus. Sometimes, midway, they realize that AI can actually achieve their overall goal and, and let them create genuinely new ways to solve problems. And so they try it. And if it works, it becomes the cornerstone of their startup. Now, the funny thing is that from outside... Unless you can actually sit down and talk with the CEO, it can be really hard to tell the difference between a startup using AI as a marketing tool and a startup using AI to solve meaningful problems in new ways. And also, Ken's return to Kyoto and his comments about needing to get away from Tokyo to really be innovative and solve problems the way he wanted to solve them that really hit home with me. It's something I've always believed, and an important reason why we should pay special attention to what's happening in places like Kyoto, Fukuoka, and Kobe. Remember, the innovation powerhouse that is Silicon Valley did not arise in New York or Washington, D.C. No. 
it developed in the suburbs of a relatively small city. At that time, San Francisco was not even one of the ten largest cities in the U.S. I, I think you need to get a certain distance away from political and financial power to really be innovative. If you're too close, that financial and political power will always be pulling you back towards the status quo. The rewards for working within the system will always be greater than the rewards for trying to change it. But get away from that power. And working within the system becomes a path to mediocrity. And now, now you have the freedom and the incentives to create something amazing. If you want to talk more about AI or pivoting, Ken and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show176 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee that Ken or I or maybe both will respond. And hey, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is my labor of love. It's free forever. People hear about the podcast because listeners like you enjoy it, and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.